0: Good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you again tonight as we continue our series Dawning. We've been dealing with some really dark topics the last few weeks as we think about taking the light of Christ into the darkest places surrounding his church. The the areas where the false teachers dwell, the, the areas where believers get misled. And we might say, well, why are we spending so much time on that? Why don't we just focus on the good? And we should constantly come back to that and yet scripture comes time and again and warns us of false teachers and false teaching and warns us of our own hearts and how we can be led astray and I think it's no mistake as we'll see tonight that Peter wants to drill this in as he wraps up his ministry to this church his life is coming to a close and he wants to make sure to speak about these things to prepare those whom he's ministered to for the rest of the time that they're going to spend before they themselves enter into Jesus's presence. And we need to likewise be prepared. And so as we think tonight, we're going to think again about those things that threaten to misguide us and also how God can help us with it. So let's go ahead and come before our Lord in prayer, and then we'll dig right in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we find in it, the the things that Bring us great joy as we read about the gospel and your love for us and your grace and how you've redeemed us, and yet also for those warnings that are in here that that warn us of how we might be drawn away from the beauty of your light. Lord, would you help us to keep our eyes on you and to experience your truth and your comfort and to reject those things that seem so promising in the moment, but only leave us left in the darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Does it sound fair to you that if I were to say, I think all of us want what we might call, quote-unquote, the good life? We'd like to live a life that's relatively at ease, relatively comfortable, relatively focused on doing the sorts of things that we enjoy, and so that's what we're seeking most of the time. Even when we read scripture, we're seeking, how do I live a life that's hopefully in harmony with God, but we're wanting that because we want our life to go smoothly. Sometimes it's where people get disillusioned with the teachings of scripture and the the true situation that Jesus' disciples find themselves in because it doesn't promise that everything is going to be easy and smooth. And yet, that's what we want, and we seek that wherever we go, including in scripture. No wonder then that false teachers exploit that at times. But it's larger than scripture. That's what we often build our lives around. You can go to many communities now and if you go and look at a home for sale, what will it do? It'll advertise how buying that home, whether it's a new home with all the latest amenities or it's a nicely restored old home or not so nicely restored old home, but put in the most glowing real estate developer type terms that make it sound like it's nice. Whatever it might be, it's going to try to convince you these materials will try to paint the picture of of how it's going to give you the good life or your family the good life. It's convenient. It's close to the schools. It's close to where you might work, where you might relax after work. Maybe it has bike trails and you can bike to work. Now, let's say you decide to take that up and your work is a few miles away, but there are nice bike trails. What are you going to need to do so you arrive on time? Well, You'd go and you'd go to the gym and you'd exercise or you'd start exercising with your bike. You'd go a shorter distance and then a little longer distance and longer and, and build up those muscles so that you can arrive on time and not utterly exhausted at work. That's what you do. And and in theory, at least in the picture perfect world where it never rains and, and never snows and the weather is always a nice, comfortable 75 degrees where that will lead to the good life. And so people will seek after that. People will buy homes, maybe you have, that that offer that. But it takes a sort of preparation. Now, the weird twisted thing that we find as we look at false teachers is they also do a preparation. We in our own selves, as we submit to false teaching, do a sort of exercise, but it's exercising the wrong parts of our spiritual body. Instead of exercising the things that draw us closer to God, we exercise our greed muscles. And that's what we see as we look at this next part of 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter's describing there the brochure for Greed's Gym. And what we see with these teachers, he says that they've, they've, Exercised their hearts here, but they haven't exercised them in the right way what What have they been doing? They've been feeding their greeds their different forms of greed they 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 have these strong greed muscles now they 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 can't just sort of demonstrate they're weight lifting heavy weights of greed because well, they think it's going to provide them with the good life, and that's what we see here as he's describing these false teachers. This isn't just a momentary slip. And and that's something that we run into in the church sometimes. Sometimes we'll see someone who is either teaching false doctrine or living a very false life. And the people that surround that person will say, well, he just made a mistake. He misspoke. She misspoke. She wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking. We come up with these excuses. And what we aren't paying attention to is that their their arms are just bulging with greed muscles. There's no doubt about it that this has been prepared. But we do that too. Our human hearts constantly want to chase after the things that we think are going to, to make our lives easier, even at the expense of others. And, and that's what we see described here, that as he says in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. And then later on, he goes on and says, then that they have hearts trained in greed, what he's describing is people who, everything they're doing, every moment they're interacting with people, they're trying to see what can they find in that person that's useful to them. What can they find in the church itself that's useful to them? That's what they're seeking after. And so commentators, they've wrestled with exactly who these false teachers are. There's discussion of that, but what seems really clear is that they don't have anything like the best interests of those whom they are teaching in mind. Still true often today. We make lots of excuses in the church when false teaching occurs. We make fa- a lot of excuses when there, there's people that we want to, to really appreciate and like, and yet they're, they're teaching things that are incompatible with either God's truth or the true practice of his truth. You know, here Peter says, this is something that they've been developing. And not just developing for themselves. And that, here's the problem, and it's the problem, you might say, well, I don't have to worry about this, I'm not a teacher, and yet we all teach by our example, we all teach by how we live, and so all of us can potentially fall into this. There, There's a, a great threat when, when you have someone come in and, and claim to be a, a teaching authority do it, but all of us have the opportunity to fall into this by how we live. As our coworkers, as our neighbors, as our families watch how we live, are we pointing to God's sort of life? Or are we pointing to the world's good life? What are we pointing to? And, and as we do that, are we potentially drawing others away from what God says is good? See, here Peter uses a really colorful phrase. He, he it may be translated something like entice in your Bible. But that phrase specifically in Greek is entice with bait. In other words, here's Peter. We, we remember what he did previously to being an apostle. He was a fisherman. He's thinking of someone casting out with a hook with bait on it and catching something. And so when he talks here, he's very much thinking about how when we choose to to live in a way that's displeasing to God. When we teach things that sound good but aren't actually true, what are we doing to those around us? We're enticing them to fall away from God, to turn away from the true light to this thing that looks delicious in the moment. If you're a fish and you're swimming in the pond and you see that worm there, it looks delicious in the moment, but it certainly isn't ultimately good for you. Every fisherman, no offense to the fishermen and women listening tonight, but every fisherman or woman is essentially trying to deceive fish going about their day and trick them into something that is ultimately very bad for them. So too, Satan loves to trap us. He casts out that net and then everyone who just chooses to cooperate with him, whether intentionally or not, does the same. All of us need to examine, how am I potentially enticing people not towards the gospel, not towards God's word, but to the things of the world that appear attractive in the moment? Balaam fell into this, and and if you've been with us for a few years and you were following along on Steadfast back in 2021, you may remember we did a series on Balaam, the 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 donkey and the seer. And, and it was so interesting. I love digging into that passage because it's a really interesting situation with Balaam. Here you have a prophet who seems to actually have some ability to contact the Lord. He knows what's right. He hears from God what's right. And yet he chooses to do instead what's wrong. That's the key thing. He knows it here. And he can't resist the worldly temptation, even after the Lord makes it clear to him that he shouldn't try to offer a curse against the people of Israel. As one of the, the kings who's an enemy of Israel wants to pay him to offer that curse, he knows he shouldn't do it, and yet he sees that worldly reward, and he just can't seem to resist it. He wants to go into sin. He keeps looking for some excuse, some loophole, some way he can do it. And so throughout scripture, we often see Balaam held up as an example of a false teacher because here he has access to the truth, and yet he goes after what's seemingly fulfilling in a worldly sense instead. Again, that's true of teachers, but it's true of all of us. We, we shouldn't let ourselves off that hook, so to speak, by saying, well, I'm not teaching anyone or I'm not teaching anyone in this moment. I don't have my teacher hat on. All of us are teaching, and all of us are teaching constantly. Let's think about what we're communicating with what we're teaching in this moment. Are we teaching God's love? Are we teaching love of our neighbor? Or are we teaching self-gain, building up those greed muscles? And and that's what we see here in, in this situation. Peter knows that if you have false teachers who are satisfying their own greed, but they're justifying themselves in that, it's not going to just enrich those false teachers, potentially. It's going to encourage those whom they're teaching to go along the same path and encourage others. It's a multiplication effect. It's going to end up taking away the joy that these people can have, experiencing that dawning, that light that Jesus has already placed in the world, and everything we hope for to come, that we know that he will fulfill when he returns. Balaam kept looking for an excuse to do this, and ultimately he figures out a way to finagle it. And we find in the Old Testament that that Balaam, while at times the Lord prevented him from going ahead and, and doing the things he wanted to do for worldly gain, ultimately, one way or another, he finagles it. And he helps the enemies of Israel entice Israel itself into sin. Take a look at Numbers 25, verse 3. And what we find there in Numbers 25, just to set the tone, they're out in the wilderness. They've been out in the wilderness for some time. And one of the things that God's been very clear about is that you shouldn't worship other gods. And yet, what do we see here in verse 3? So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Later on, verse Numbers 31, we find out that Balaam is responsible for this. He had been there previously in Numbers. Now we find out that this incident that actually brings great destruction on Israel is his work. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So what do we find here? Here it is, Balaam has been prevented. Even at one point by his donkey, he refuses to, to go forward with Balaam's wicked plans and actually speaks to Balaam. Balaam's had a donkey speak to him. He still is trying to charge ahead with somehow getting the worldly gain that he really wants. And now he's done it. He, he sends the, the young women of the enemies of Israel into the camp and they take back the young men to go worship their own gods. And the wrath of God comes upon Israel. Balaam couldn't just offer an empty curse over Israel. God wasn't going to allow that. But here the Israelites actively choose to follow the false teacher into sin. I'm sure some of those Israelites encourage some of their friends to do it. And what do you know? The next thing you know, God's judgment comes upon Israel. And so it is that Balaam is held out as a horrible example throughout Scripture, far worse than, than those who just raised up armies against Israel. Why? Because they didn't just attack Israel. They, they didn't just try to attack the physical bodies of the people of Israel. What did the, What did Balaam do here? He went after people's souls. He went after the, their relationship with the Lord. He took away something incredibly precious from them. So Balaam is held up as this exemplar of wickedness. And we see that, for example, in Jude 11, where Jude writes, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. If you're looking for a trifecta of wickedness, this is a pretty good one to find in Scripture. We have Cain, the, the first murderer. You have Korah, who rises up and tries to reject the the legitimate ruling authority of the people of God and Moses and right smack dab in the middle of that you have Balaam this this man who who could actually talk with the Lord he he was functioning at some level as a prophet and yet even as he knew that it was wicked and even as he knew that God's favor was on the people of Israel he chose to try to draw them into sin and succeeded because he was going to get an earthly reward if he could thwart the people of Israel. Where are we tempted by earthly reward? And and you might say, well, I'm not tempted by earthly reward, but all of us are. And it may be in our workplace trying to get ahead and not being loving and compassionate to our coworkers. It might be in our neighborhoods where we want to kind of get back at our neighbors. And so we find some way to do that. be on social media. It certainly could be in politics. Politics thrives on saying how we get ahead of other people, and I don't hear any major politicians advocating in a way that is nice and wonderful and pure in the eyes of the Lord. I hear over and over again getting what's ours, but not doing it in ways that are pleasing to God. What ways tempt us? What things get us excited And we forget ourselves that we're called to be those who are teaching the truth of who God is by how we live and what we say. Cain, how does Cain fit into this? It's really interesting. I I was researching some of the background on Jewish tradition around Cain. And, And if you've read through Genesis, you know he was the first murderer. He killed his brother Abel because God favored Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. But in Jewish tradition, this isn't from scripture, so it's not necessarily authoritative, but it certainly is interesting to think about. The suggestion was that there was a discussion between Cain and Abel before Cain killed Abel. That's not particularly surprising. And in that discussion, Cain suggested that God was unjust. Whatever it was that Cain was doing that made his sacrifice displeasing to God and Abel was doing that made his sacrifice pleasing to God, It seems that Cain wasn't able to look at himself and say, well, maybe I need to offer a better sacrifice or have a better attitude about that sacrifice or whatever it was he needed to do. No, what does he do? He contests that God is unjust and that he was ultimately going to be unjust, that even in the next life, he would never get the justice he deserved for his sacrifice. And it seems like that may be, again, this is extra scriptural tradition, but, but interesting as the rabbis studied it and passed down the oral tradition of the people of God, they suggested that it may have been at that point then that Cain decides to take matters into his own hands and kill Abel. What does that matter? Well, whether that actually happened with Cain and Abel or not, it certainly is how we often function. We we do something it's clearly not in the spirit of how God wants us to treat our neighbors or, or to reflect on him and, and interact with the Lord we're we're not using the scriptures well, we're we're not treating the people around us well. We're just doing something that's clearly displeasing to God. But our solution when we find that God isn't pleased in our acts is not to to change, not to ask him to help us to change, but to to contest with God whether he's really being just. Maybe we say, well, everybody else is doing this and getting away with it, or I'm not really taking advantage of my coworkers that much or my fellow students that much or my neighbors that much compared to how everybody else does it. And we start to argue with God, whether we realize it or not, whether he is actually being just and if he will ever be just. And as we start to play into that, Satan loves to come in in those moments and then say, well, maybe you just need to take matters into your own hands justice for yourself. And the false teachers, in some sense, seem to be doing that. They presumably greatly resented the apostles because here are these apostles. They're teaching God's word. And inasmuch as the people follow them, those false teachers aren't that important. They'll never be that important. Because even if they switched and started teaching the truth, they're not the apostles. They're not those who dined with Jesus and lived with Jesus. And so they say, well, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'll just deviate a little further from the truth, because then I can say, you need to follow me, because guess what? Peter's saying it's going to be a rough road. You might even get martyred. You're not going to become rich. I'll tell you what, if you do what I'm saying, look at me. I'm living high on the hog. I'm getting ahead in life. You just follow me, and people say, ooh, that that worm over there. I, yeah, there's that little metal thing above it. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm going to go and take that, because it looks delicious. It looks like it's going to nourish me in this moment. And so those false teachers start to encourage us, let's do some greed muscle weightlifting and start strengthening our greed muscles so that we can take care of ourselves. Because if we don't take care of ourselves, no one is. I'm not going to do it. The world isn't going to look out for us. Who's going to look out for us? I'm going to look out for me. You're going to look out for you. And so we start to justify our sin. And in that, we start to mislead others. That's what we see clearly in Balaam. He he finds a way to ignore God's clear word towards him and he misleads the people and leads them into sin. So too do we when we stray from God's teaching. We justify ourselves all the way. Then we find ourselves not experiencing the, the dawning light of the Savior, but instead finding ourselves in darkness because that path is a very, very dark path. These false teachers... Peter says, are outside the promise of God. He, he says here that they are children of destruction. What does he mean by that? It means their their very nature is being formed by their evil. A cursed children is how it says it in the ESV. He He's not saying that as a as an angry statement necessarily against them, it seems like what he's saying is simply describing who they are they They haven't chosen to follow the lord. they've followed they've chosen to follow their own stomachs, their own desires, their own seeming kind of path to success, and in that they're not children of God but accursed children. Now, what do we do? because We hear some of these things and we don't realize that we're falling into sin. The Israelites, did they realize in the moment that Balaam had worked out this devious plan to mislead them? Well, they should have because if they listened to what God was saying, they knew they shouldn't follow people that worshiped other gods. They they weren't supposed to intermarry. They weren't supposed to go to other temples. They weren't supposed to do any of that. And yet, I think they probably worked it out of their heads. They thought, oh, this sounds pretty good. And maybe, you know, if we can... Get along with the, the the people around us and get along with the gods around us. Maybe things will go better. I think that's what they were thinking. And so what do we do? Because we find ourselves seemingly being tossed to and fro by the things that the world says are going to work and even the things that different Bible teachers say are going to work. What do we do in that moment? Well, we need to rely on something that's unchanging. This weekend we had some sad news in St. Louis. The St. Louis Battlehawks had their season end, and... They had their season end after they won and tied for second place in the in the division now i know nothing about football but i do know that it's been really fun seeing everyone so excited about these battle hawks and cacawing all around the area and and seeing the pictures of, of the dome that's been vacant for years now other than conventions being packed with people wearing battle hawks gear it, it was so exciting especially after they tried to do it in 2020 and the pandemic shut it down how exciting that was but here's the thing that happened for the Battlehawks. They, they had a pretty good season. Not a perfect season, but a pretty good season. But then they found themselves tossed to and fro by the very system to determine whether they, they could go to the postseason or not and they had this complex formulation that if you had if you tied for a place in the playoff system that then there were all these different calculations on different ways you'd scored over the season against others in your division and so on and so forth it all goes above my head but they won their game on Saturday like they needed to do to go to the postseason and yet because Seattle also won on Sunday and then entered into this realm of these formulas, what seemed like it should provide success ended up still leaving them out of the postseason. Now, in life, we find ourselves a lot like the battlehawks. We might think, well, I'm playing a pretty good game. I'm not getting into the trouble that my neighbors do. I'm not doing anything terrible at work. I'm generally just trying to mind my own business, take care of my own family, make sure everything goes okay. But we're not running a perfect season because none of us can, we're sinners. And then we hear these false teachers claiming they have a solution, they can game the system, they can beat that postseason formula so that even though it seems as though that solution is out of our control, it's in the fates of uh, of this formula floating out there, we can actually grab on to success. Maybe the Battle Hawks could have tried that. They could have paid off someone to try to change the formula or something. But you know, it would have come out eventually. And likewise, when when we choose to to follow false teaching and we choose to try to find a way to short circuit the problem of sin and get to success, we find ourselves out in the dark. We find ourselves out of the postseason. We're we're not in God's presence. We can't do it. The Battle Hawks couldn't bring themselves into the postseason. At some point, it was out of their control. And the moment we sinned, entering the postseason was out of our control as well. But as we come to God's word and we see his truth and we see the relationship that he wants with us, we see that it is in God's control and he is there to help us. His spirit dwells in us and will guide us as we wrestle with what to do and how to do it. What does he call us to do? What is Peter calling the people here to do so that they they don't fall to deception? Well, notice here in verse fourteen once again, as he talks, that we need to exercise some spiritual muscles here. Uh, notice I have underlined part of this verse. That it begins. We read this earlier. They have their eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin. Notice this next part. They entice unsteady souls. They have a. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Now we talked about that enticing. That's what what false teaching does that's what false living does it entices other people he says that they're targeting the unstable and the unstable peter is talking about are the people he's writing to the people he's ministered to it seems like an insult until we remember this is peter speaking Someone pointed out, and I, I love this about this passage. Peter knows as he says that. They're not thinking, wow, judgmental, perfect Peter. No, Peter is the Peter who had instructed John, Mark, and what had happened. And, and Mark had written it down in his gospel that's always making Peter look like an idiot. He's the Peter that was fully aware that he, if you're looking for someone in the disciples who was an unstable soul, who was it? It was Peter. Peter's writing to, to people who are unstable knowing that he's been that. That's his, that's his story. He's been enticed to sin. He's denied Jesus trying to seek after worldly comfort after Jesus was arrested. He often rushed to to mess things up. So he's he's writing these people saying, I understand where you are. I understand the appeal of this this false teaching, but understand it's a, a trap. It's a bait. So what do you need to do? How do you become aware of what's wrong? Well, Peter's writing them the truth. We find in Scripture over and over again the truth. Peter refers elsewhere to the other parts of the New Testament, including Paul. And so what do we find here? What do we need to do if we want to avoid that trap? If we want God's help? If we want the real way to get to the formula of success, to get to the postseason of eternal life, we turn to God's Word. We ask God to guide us in it. And we read it so that when false teaching comes, we know it's false. We'll still get deceived at times. We're not perfect. But the more we read it, and the more we read all of it, the better prepared we are. Back in Luke 22, Jesus talks to Peter before he denies Jesus. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's fulfilling that commission here. He's passing along just as Jesus encouraged Peter even before he fell that he could come back and he would someday strengthen his brothers. So too, Peter is trying to strengthen those brothers and sisters in Christ that he's been ministering to. Come back to the truth. Hold on to that truth. Know that truth. What did Peter do? He clearly spent the rest of his life soaking in the promises of God, soaking in the life of Jesus, and then he was ministering to other people and he knew how to respond to that trap. That's what we need to do too. They need to do it. We need to do it. Why oh, is it tempting in the moment? And it's usually when we least expect it. So that's why we need to be reading God's word so we're prepared for it. I was reading about the ultra runner, Yohasha Zakazivski. I think I might have butchered that a little bit. But anyway, she's actually British and living in Australia at the moment, but she's an ultra runner. And I didn't know what ultra running was, but ultra running is when you run further than a marathon in fact she just set the world record not long ago running 255.7 miles in 48 hours world record incredibly impressive she's been doing this for years one of the top runners in the world anyway she she found herself just the other day flying from australia back to england to run in the gb ultras race and partway through the race, her leg started hurting incredibly. And you know, she'd been training for for years for this sort of thing. She'd been practicing for it. She has the, the successes behind her. And she did the logical thing when she realized that she was in extreme pain. She realized she needed to end her race. And so she saw someone she knew who was cheering her on. That person offered to give her a ride to where she could speak to one of the judges at the next stop. And so she planned to do that. When she arrived at the next stop, I I suppose the the judge there didn't see that she'd gotten out of a car and the judge said, you're going to blame yourself. You're going to regret not finishing this race. And so she said she decided to run it non-competitively, that she was going to finish it but not try to win. However, as she approached the finish line, she found that she was in third place and she ran across the finish line. They immediately put the the metal over her neck and start taking pictures, and it seems in that moment she fell to the temptation. No one seemingly had noticed that she had made it there by car partway, and she took the glory and it seemed like she had short circuited the problem okay, she was in pain, she wasn't able to finish this race. she knew she could do it, but this time she hadn't. she could just go ahead and take the glory until someone looked back at the log and realized that one of her checkpoints she had completed in in superhuman time. There was no way she could have run from point A to point B in that time. Questions started to come up and someone had seen her get out of the car. Now she, this person who has accomplished so much in running, is a disgraced runner and people are talking about maybe a lifetime ban for her because in that moment as she ran across that line she saw a way to snatch what seemed like success And she threw away a greater success that she had this incredibly impressive record over the years. I'm sure people are now looking back trying to figure out if she cheated before. And here's the thing for all of us. We already have the ultimate trophy. We already have the ultimate ribbon around our neck. We have God's love. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And yet we see that bait over there. We see that finish line for this race that's not going well at the moment. And we think, it won't hurt. It won't hurt if I follow this false teacher, even though it doesn't seem to quite fit with scripture, it won't hurt in this moment, or it won't hurt if people see me taking advantage of someone else or or taking a moral shortcut or or doing these sorts of things in the moment right now because it'll give me success in this moment. We forget that we already have the ultimate gold medal around our neck, thanks to the work of Jesus. May we not forget that. Satan offers that car ride and offers that no one saw us in it, that he'll get us there. But God is the one who offers us the true security, the true stability, the thing that gets us past all the formulas of success and failure and takes us right to the finish line, right to the postseason, right into his love. May we all remember that today. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to understand that we get success only through you, that you are the one who offers true success and stability, true hope, true grace. Would you help us to hold on to that today and every day? If if someone's listening tonight who's never held on to your gospel, Lord, may this be the night that he or she would realize that you offer that. But for each of us who have too, would you remind us as we we see that bait, as we see that, that car ride to the finish line, would you help us to turn away from it and turn back to you? pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope this has been an encouragement to you tonight. If it has, please give us a like or a share. You can help others not be tempted by the bait on social media of other things, but to come and hear the truth, the true success of God's word. So amazing to watch as God works. Last night, we celebrated our first year anniversary of having Sunday worship at Little Hills. Here's just a little glimpse into that. Look at that worship team that we had for the special celebration. Look at the people gathering. It was such a joy. There's so much to come. I hope that you'll be there on Sunday to celebrate with us as we continue into year two. And also that you'll join me tomorrow night, or excuse me, not tomorrow night. That would be interesting. But join me next week, next Monday night, as we wrap up this series looking at the false freedom that false teaching seems to offer us. If you have any prayers or questions, feel free to write at 833-356-4032. I can't wait to hear from you. I'd love to pray with you. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I'll see you again next week.